0: This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Hey everyone, Sid Evans here. We're taking a break this week on Biscuits and Jam, but I wanted to reshare one of our favorite episodes with singer-songwriter Mary Gaucher. As both a chef and musician, she tells me about the perfect Italian cookies, opening a Cajun restaurant in Boston, and her memories of her friend and hero, John Prine. Mary's new book, Saved by a Song, The art and healing power of songwriting is in stores now. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living Magazine. Today's guest is a Grammy-nominated songwriter who spent the early part of her career as a chef and restaurant owner, so she is no stranger to the kitchen.
1: Yes, yeah, Sid, I've been cooking every single night. In fact, I'm on the verge of looking in my closet to see if I have any chef coats left. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, cooking. <laughs> I'm cooking every night.
0: For Mary Gauthier, music and food have been lifelong passions. A native of Louisiana, she opened a successful Creole restaurant in Boston that often had lines out the door. She later sold her share of that business and used the funds to make an album named after the restaurant. Dixie Kitchen, and despite not getting into the music industry until she was 35, she quickly built a reputation as one of Nashville's most talented songwriters, with names like Tim McGraw, Blake Shelton, and Jimmy Buffett all covering her work. Mary's latest album, Rifles and Rosary Beads, was co-written with wounded veterans. It speaks directly to the challenges and fears that soldiers and their families have faced. This track, The War After the War, was named NPR's Song of the Year in 2018. It's a powerful snapshot of a veteran adjusting to life at home, living in the shadows of fallen servicemen and women. Like so many of Mary's songs, it's unflinchingly honest.
1: People look at
0: On today's program, Mary tells us that keeping things simple usually works best for cooking and songwriting.
1: You can do a complex souffle if you want, but, man, people are just going to love it if you fry okra. Put a little salt and pepper in the batter drip it in grease. Sit it in front of them, they're going to love it. It's a a really uh, beautiful lesson. Be yourself in your songs. Don't put on airs. Don't try to impress anybody. All that and more on Biscuits and Jam.
0: Well, uh, Mary Gaucher, it's great to have you on. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam.
1: Great to be with you, Sid. Thank you.
0: First of all, tell me where the name Gaucher comes from, and am I saying it correctly?
1: Yeah, you got it. It's a Cajun French name. I was born in New Orleans, raised down in Baton Rouge and Thibodeau, Louisiana. The name is very common in South Louisiana, but once I started traveling as a songwriter, I realized it's virtually unpronounceable everywhere else on earth. So uh, <laughs> not the greatest stage name, but in Louisiana, everybody knows somebody named Gauchet. Um I was adopted into a Italian family actually so the name is quite complicated for me you know my ad- adoptive Italian father um got the name from a man he never met his Italian mother got pregnant from a uh, they call him a in the family a crazy musician a crazy Cajun And uh, he married her and then disappeared. So my dad never met his dad. Mr. Gaucher is a mystery to all of us, but we carry his name. And that uh, is so removed anyway from me because I was adopted that it's so many levels of removal. It's a... It's a, it's a long story, which I've made records about. Actually, looking for roots, looking for that uh, the story that resonates. It's been quite, quite the journey for me. The reason I ended up in music, actually, is this quest for identity and meaning. The Louisiana heritage is is a part of who I am, but uh, I carry it lightly. I I don't really know where I'm truly from. <laughs> I'm an alien.
0: So Mary, so much of your of your life has been about food. I mean, tell me some of your early food memories.
1: Like I said, I was adopted, but I was adopted by Italians in a Cajun town. There was a large Italian community in Thibodeau, Louisiana. So both sides of my family have Italian names, and both side, both grandparents, my my mother's parents and my father's mother, owned restaurants. And so uh, my dad's mom owned a place called Jenny's Cafe, And she would cook Italian food, mostly meatballs and spaghetti for folks uh, down in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And my uh, grandparents on my mother's side owned a cafe called the Green Lantern Cafe. And they did breakfast and lunch as well. And so I was raised by uh, my parents who both worked for the state, but their parents worked in restaurants. And so when I said at the ripe old age of, I don't know, 20 two or something I want my own restaurant they both looked at me like don't do it <laughs> because they watch their parents just owning a restaurant is 24 7 and they didn't want that for themselves I really enjoy food service I I ended up going to chef school eventually but I really uh, I like the hands-on I like I think the thing that the food and music have in common i think it's a very active way of expressing and showing love if you if you make somebody a really good meal and you put love in it they can they can feel that and uh, there's a a transfer of affection in in that transaction and i think i think that's really the overlap is the way that i approach songwriting and and the way that i did approach cooking it was one one meal at a time, one song at a time, a transfer of affection, really.
0: I mean, that's what so much of Southern cooking is about. What did your holidays look like? Um, what does an Italian Cajun holiday look like?
1: <laughs> a lot of food. We were weaving Italian heritage into the culture uh, of South Louisiana, which was predominantly French, and African. So we had okra, which, you know, came from Africa. If you trace back the heritage of it, it it came from the Caribbean and Africa. And uh, we had, uh, they call it oyster dressing, which is uh, South Louisiana delicacy, the and they'd put it with celery, peppers, onions, garlic, and bread, which celery, peppers, and onions, as they call it, the Holy Trinity down there. <laughs> um, it goes in everything. So we'd have oyster dressing, fried okra, stewed okra. And then they'd put uh, the stuffing in the turkey was an Italian stuffing. It was ground meat with cinnamon, pecans, and raisins. And they'd stuff that into the bird and uh, cook the bird, the turkey, uh, with the stuffing inside it. They'd stitch the the, uh, the stuffing into the uh, outside of the bird and close it on the skin that hung out the, the back end of the bird. And it would be so delicious. It was called sweet dressing. Oh, I forget the most important ingredient of that, sugar. Uh, <laughs> you know, South Louisiana is uh, a major producer of sugar, so we find... Uh, sugar and everything, so it's a sweet dressing made with oyster. I mean, with uh, ground meat, pecans, which are indigenous to South Louisiana, sugar, cinnamon, and uh, it, it was sautéed in in a, a cast iron skillet and then stuffed into the bird and then cooked, recooked in the bird. Uh, and there was all kind of other side things like, of uh, course, sweet potato pie, pumpkin pie, pecan pie. Uh, bread pudding with bourbon sauce uh the, the cocktails were were endless part of the cooking process for my family would always involve cocktails they'd start with the wine and uh work work their way up to uh stuff with bourbon uh bur- bourbon was the was the hard liquor of choice and and uh, they i don't remember whiskey sours for the ladies uh, and uh, the men would just, I think, drink bourbon over cracked ice.
0: So, Mary, when did you really start cooking? Was it with the family or was it really more of a restaurant thing um, that you really took to it?
1: I wish I'd have cooked more with my grandmother. She She died when I was 14, so I was a little young. But she would cook cookies and cookies and cookies. We had so many Italian cookies, dozens of kinds of Italian cookies and breads. And her her family, there was 12 brothers and sisters, and they'd all throw in, and we'd have this giant feast of St. Joseph. And I wish I'd have cooked more with her because those Italian cookies were incredible. Uh, but I didn't really learn how to cook well in, until I went to chef school. I went, I went to chef school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Uh, at the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts.
0: That's a long way from Louisiana.
1: I know, but the way they taught it was through Italian cooking. The teacher and owner, uh, Roberta Dowling, who's no longer with us, uh, believed that the best way to teach students to cook is to learn how to cook uh, the indigenous foods of each region of Italy. You know, Emilia Romano, Lombardy, each region has very specific approaches uh, to, to, to foods we think of as Italian food. Uh, you know, some regions would put carrots in the sauce for sweetener. Some regions would put uh, a variety of things in the sauce that, that make it distinctive. So I learned Italian again at chef school and we sort of spent a little time with the French, but she was a a believer that the French overcomplicated things, that the way to go is Italian. And I actually am in agreement with her that, you know, the simple, simple cuisine of uh, taking a zucchini and and pulling it from your garden and just sauteing it real quick with salt and pepper and olive oil, maybe a little garlic and put it on a plate. What a delicious approach. So uh, uh, yeah, I ended up in Boston through a series of things and went to culinary school there. And that was where I opened my uh, first restaurant called the Dixie Kitchen.
0: So Mary you you left home really young. Tell me about how did you how did you get from point A to point B? How did you get through that and get to a point where you could go to culinary school?
1: Well, there's a line in the Tennessee Williams play called Streetcar Named Desire where Blanche DuBois as she's being carried off at the end of the movie by a man and a woman in white coats who are fixing to put her in restraints. She looks up and smiles at them before they institutionalize her as they're carrying her away. And she says, I've always relied on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved that scene. And I love that line. That's the answer said I've always relied on the kindness of strangers as an adoptee. You know, my whole family is, um, is, is once removed. They were, strangers to me, and they brought me in and were kind to me. I left young because we we had addiction in our family. I had addiction in me, uh, and it was uh, was a tough go. Uh, But I ended up with this opportunity in Boston. Uh, I found these investors who paid for me to go to chef school. It was through a series of events that, looking back, are kind of miraculous. I ended up with a group of people who believed in me and invested in me and funded several restaurants and my education
0: so food really helped you get through some some tough times
1: yeah i think so i think that's how it worked i think that being at the restaurant the um, opening night of my second restaurant i was arrested for drunk driving and that's July 13th 1990 and i remember it because that's my sobriety date i'll be 30 years sober in 2 months and after i got sober i was able to really flourish in that restaurant business it provided stability for me and the restaurant did real well and then at a certain point i was just consumed with songwriting and so my passion went from food and restaurant to to creation of, of songs and at 10 years into sobriety, I came to Nashville. You know, food and, and restaurants were a life raft for me. Uh, and then songs and songwriting became a life raft for me and, and still are, I think.
0: What was it like bringing Cajun food to Boston, Massachusetts and introducing it to probably a bunch of people who had not had much of it before?
1: Yes, yeah, good question. The full service restaurant that we opened for Cajun food was a small Jewish deli and the owner of the jewish deli passed away at work one day and it was just so happens one of my investors it was his favorite deli cuz he loved their potato salad cuz they did that thing where they made potato salad with hot potatoes if you dress hot if you boil real potatoes and dress it with the mayonnaise and the and the vinegar while the potatoes are still hot and throw in the onions and the egg while the potatoes are still hot it's just a very special potato salad It's the way you do it right, according to my Jewish investor, Norman Chiletsky, (laughs) and Norman knew potato salad. Well, when the owner died, the restaurant became available. His daughters tried to run it, but there was was no way. And so we actually picked up the lease from that restaurant for $20,000. It was a run down, it had run to the ground, Uh, it was a mess of a place and so he handed me the keys and we made a decision to transition from what they were doing into Cajun food. I was in chef school at the time and uh, my Italian, I haven't told this story ever, but my Italian teacher at chef school said, Maria, you have to do what's in your heart. I'm like, I was going to open up some kind of cafeteria there or something. I didn't know what to do with the place. I was handed a restaurant that was a disaster, but it was a restaurant. And um, I didn't know what to make of it. And, and you know, I was drinking after work. I wasn't sober yet. My Italian chef teacher said I had to do what's in my heart. And what's in my heart, of course, is Cajun. And so uh, I went back uh, and proposed a Cajun restaurant to my Jewish investor. And it took him a while to agree that this was what we should do, but we eventually did. And and, um, so we closed it down for two weeks, and I had a mural painter come in and put scenes from New Orleans on the walls. I changed the menu, uh, and when the people came in the day we opened the Cajun restaurant and they didn't have their potato salad (laughs) anymore— It was quite the disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't know what to do with an oyster po' boy or jambalaya or gumbo. But what what eventually happened, and actually it wasn't even eventually, the Cheap Eats section of the Boston Globe got wind of it. And uh, this was a very important publicity stunt, really. I don't even know how it happened. But once Cheap Eats reviewed a place, the city of Boston knew about it. Everything on the menu was under $10, so Cheap Eats grabbed us, and from the minute the Cheap Eats ran, we had a line out the door, and that lasted for seven years.
0: Wow, that's really something.
1: It was madness. The city of Boston lined up at the door, and I didn't know how to run a restaurant that that was... Inundated Inundated with interest. I had to learn how to move fast. And uh, it is settled into displaced southerners. We had uh, so many people that were so excited to see collard greens and fried okra and real gumbo, and oh my God, oyster po'boy, shrimp po boy, crawfish po'boy, smoked sausage po'boy. They had, hadn't had it for years. I think it was one of Boston's f- first fully integrated restaurants. Our clientele was half black, half white. I didn't see that anywhere else in the city at the time. And uh, we spoke to people's longing for home. Uh, we saw Tony Sacheray's Creole seasoning, which- I love that stuff. You couldn't get it in the grocery stores yet. I brought it in from New Orleans. We flew in bushels and bushels of live crawfish. I'd run a, a crawfish festival when crawfish were were at their peak. I'd drive to Logan Airport and pick up a couple hundred pounds of crawfish that were flown in from South Louisiana. And, and the lines were uh, out the door for crawfish. Uh, boy, crawfish, nobody else was doing it. So it really worked. It served a need that I didn't even know was there. This follow your heart thing, it's a really good piece of advice. Um, It's a really good piece of advice. It works for food, and it really works for songs as well.
0: What were your hit items on the the menu?
1: Um, We called uh, this thing we made up the Southern Hospitality Platter. That's the thing that flew out the door the most. The Southern Hospitality Platter had... A piece of jalapeno cornbread and a big piece. Uh, I like sweet cornbread, and I liked it with chunks of jalapenos in it. So uh, it would be about three inches high uh, and about two inches long. It was a tall, beautiful piece of cornbread that was anything but dry. We put sour cream and quite a bit of celery, peppers, onions, and some uh, jalapenos. So it was. It was a. A lot of people don't like sweet cornbread but it had a bite and a sweetness. So it had sugar and jalapenos. So it would come with a giant chunk of cornbread, uh, jambalaya. We made our jambalaya with shrimp and smoked sausage and chicken thighs, uh, and then red beans and rice. And we made our red beans and rice with smoked ham hocks. So they'd get chunk of ham hock meat. So red beans and rice, jambalaya, cornbread. Uh, it was a big hit. People, it was just straight up carbs. It, it was so good and not good for you. Uh, <laughs> but people, people loved it. And then a side of uh, collard greens that we would cook with onions and bacon.
0: You know, when you build a restaurant like that, you're building a, a community. And I'm just wondering, was it hard for you to walk away from that as much as you wanted to play music?
1: Yeah, it was a process more than an event. I knew I was being pulled towards music, and I knew I was falling out of love with the restaurant. But I would wake up in a cold sweat, and I'd just will myself to try and fall back in love with the restaurant because it was stable. And it was uh, providing for a lot of people's families, and uh, we, we did well, you know. But, if you know, when a relationship's over, you can't will yourself to be in love again. And slowly but surely, I knew I was going to have to go. And so we did end up writing out all the recipes much more clearly than the, the way that we had done it before. Portions, we figured out portion, like, you know, a half a cup of this and a quarter cup of that. And, and made a recipe book uh, and pulled it all together into uh, sort of here's how you do Dixie Kitchen. And I handed it to my business partner's. They bought me out for, you know, not much money, like $10,000, which I put into my second record. And uh, my head waiter took over, and I moved to Nashville. I don't think they lasted a year. They tried, but you you got to have a Cajun at the Cajun restaurant. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's lots more with Mary Gaucher after the break. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients... This slow roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced, sweet bees honey barbecue chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and we're talking with singer-songwriter Mary Gaucher. Tell me about the move to Nashville. That was a real moment for you, and and a and a huge change, um, kind of later in life. Um, you know what brought that on?
1: Well, I knew I was in love with songwriting, and I knew I was not in love with cooking. And so I made a record of my first 10 songs. I made a record and it got nominated for a Boston Music Award, which was incredible. In a city full of folk singers, uh, there's only three records nominated for Best New Artist. I got nominated and that gave me some confidence. And so I really, really, really focused on the next batch of songs. uh, And that next batch of songs became my second record and I got Invited to play the Newport Folk Festival. I still owned two restaurants, was working full time, and I'd never toured. And in fact, I'd never even actually played gigs. I was still playing open mics. And um, that changed everything. It's like, okay, if they think I'm good enough for Newport Folk Festival, I need to take this seriously. And after Newport booked me, uh, 12 other folk festivals booked me that summer. And that's when I said, I got to go. I got to go, go to Nashville. I got to take this seriously.
0: So, Mary, we're, we're here talking on, on April 9th, and we just got word a couple of days ago that John Prine had died. And you at one point said that, that all roads lead to John Prine. Um, I'm wondering what kind of influence he had on you and, and your journey.
1: Well, for me, there was no greater influence than the songs and music of John Prine. John never got complicated. He really uh, kept it three chords in the truth his whole career. And so anybody who could learn a G, a C, a D, and maybe a B minor on a guitar could play a John Prine song. And I think that that's part of the appeal. His melodies were, were so catchy. They would suck you in, and then the lyrics would keep you there. John uh, was... I think the one artist uh, that spoke to me the longest, the deepest, and forever will be the greatest influence on me. I first saw John Pry when I was a student at LSU. I was 19 years old. And John used to come and play uh, with um six-pack of beer and a pack of cigarettes. And so he'd come on stage, and the bar still wasn't for him to sit on. It was for him to put the six-pack of beer on. The show was over when he ran out of beer and I, I probably saw more John Prine shows than any other artist. And then uh, when I came to Nashville, um, my goal was to meet and uh, pitch myself to Albanetta, John's manager, John's record company, and, and I was able to do that. Um, I actually was offered a record deal at uh, Oh Boy Records, but it came in at the same time that the Lost Highways offer came and I went with the major label instead. But uh, John took me on the road nonetheless, and I got to tour with him for uh, a couple of years. I was his opening act and went from town to town, got to know him, got to be friends with him, Uh, was really uh, sitting at the foot of the master every night, side stage watching him work his magic. I can't overestimate the amount of uh, affection and, and love I have for the man and his music. Uh, he opened so so many doors for me. He's integral to to me as a human being and as an artist. Uh, his there's just no way to overestimate what what he did for me. He he was the most important artist in in, in my development. And uh, gosh, you know what a tragic loss uh, to to really to really um fully. Uh, experience the loss is going to take some time I'm still in shock
0: mm. uh, Mary how did he affect you as a as a songwriter
1: well he taught me that uh, the best way to go is is to write the truth and keep it simple the simple truths that are universal and do it in your own voice you don't have to imitate anybody just be yourself keep it simple stay true uh, and that's really the biggest lesson you can learn in songwriting. Actually, there's the overlap with cooking as well. You know, you can you can do a complex souffle if you want, but, man, people are just going to love it if you fry okra. Put a little salt and pepper in the batter, drip it in grease, sit it in front of them, they're going to love it. It's a really uh, beautiful lesson that... Uh, be yourself in your songs don't put on airs don't try to impress anybody you know and he always was able to do it with a smile as well this was one of the great sleight of hands that John Prine always was capable of better than anyone is that ability to do it with a wink and a nod he would make you smile even though there was tears on your face that's a that's a master
0: yes it is so so your last album was um, was called Rifles and Rosary Beats, and it was co-written with Wounded Veterans, um, and it was also nominated for a Grammy. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the concept behind that and, and how that came to be.
1: Yeah, I was invited to be a participant in a nonprofit called Songwriting with Soldiers, And the nonprofit pairs professional songwriters with wounded veterans and their families. Uh, And we go to a retreat center um, and spend a weekend bearing witness and writing songs. It's usually a small gathering, four songwriters, six to ten veterans. And each veteran, sometimes with their family, will leave that retreat with a song of their own. Uh, That reflects their experience. So uh, I did that program Uh, as a songwriter for a little over five years when I realized I was sitting on a goldmine of songs, uh, that these songs were really good. And uh, I asked uh, the founder of the program, Darden Smith, if he would mind if I made a record of these songs and put them into the world. And once again, back to my Italian (laughs) professor at cooking school who said, Maria, you follow your heart. And so my heart knew that these songs were good, And they were better than anything I was writing on my own. And uh, I made a record about two and a half years ago of uh, 10 of the songs. I'm sitting on about 50 co-writes with veterans and their families that I personally participated in. The organization itself has over 500 co-writes with veterans and their families. Um, And you can find all the songs at songwritingwithsoldiers.org. But I picked 10 of the 50 I thought reflected the experiences that I, I had heard. And I put them into a record, and and we released it. And wouldn't you know it, the thing got traction, and we ended up uh, nominated for a Grammy. Uh, and uh, actually, we walked out of the ceremony with John Prine, who John and I, we both did not win, <laughs> We I've got a great picture of me and John next to each other uh, with uh, this look on our eye like, well, what do we do? And, you know, he said, well, we go back to work. I think the joy of being nominated, uh, and John did an interview with uh, CBS this morning that we watched the other night. And John said, people don't remember whether you won or not. They remember that your name is affiliated with the Grammys. And I think that's true. Being nominated is is a very big deal. And being part of the discussion, uh, especially with these songs, because they're not about me. They're really, truly a reflection of war trauma and what war does to an individual and a family uh, was a big deal for me. The impact on our soldiers and their families has remained the same since the beginning of conflict.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You've got a great song on there about a veteran having breakfast at a Waffle House. (laughs) And you seem to find a lot of meaning in uh, simple moments like that.
1: Learned it from John. Learned it from John. Um, Yeah, you put the character into a story. And uh, when the veteran told me that uh, Waffle House on Veterans Day, November the 11th, Uh, gives a free breakfast to active-duty military. Uh, That's when I knew that's where our song's going to go. Like, we're going to bring you to the Waffle House, and you're going to tell me what happens next. So we just sat him down in the Waffle House uh, in our imagination, uh, and he talked about the waitress, and he talked about being thanked for his service. He talked about being uncomfortable with being called a hero because in his heart he knew that the real heroes were no longer with us. Uh, He talked about the parade going by, the Veterans Day Parade, and, and how he was proud of his service and how he wanted to honor other people's service, but also how he was uncomfortable with applause and celebration because war is tragic. And the complexity of all that worked itself into that song. And I would have, honest to God, never have written that song if John hadn't shown me what to do with his masterpiece, Sam Stone. One of the greatest songs of the 20th century about a Vietnam veteran who came home wounded, became a junkie, and ended up OD. And That song is a masterpiece, and it opened the door for me to tell the truth as I worked with veterans.
0: You know, speaking of great songs, um, there's a song called uh, Mercy Now that became a big hit for you, and it just seems very appropriate right now. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what your thoughts are about the concept of of mercy as it relates to what's going on right now in the world.
1: Yes, Sid, thanks for asking. Uh, I guess I wrote that in 2002, Uh, so it's 18 years old now, and it's so strange how a song uh, can mean different things as we go through uh, different things. I came to that song um, as I realized uh, uh, that uh, if I wanted mercy, which I did, Um, then it would be in my own best interest to offer mercy as well. The song is going to have a new meaning as we work our way through whatever's coming next during this terrible pandemic of 2020. They carry the weight of the faithful Who follow them down And country they could use some mercy now. Every living thing could you
0: You know, with everyone spending so much time at home and all locked down and quarantine and I'm just wondering if this has uh, changed your perspective on, on things.
1: Well, you know, I'm a slow mover, I think, on perspective. Uh, I'm painfully aware of how wrong I often am. So what I'm trying to do is uh, is keep it in the day, like uh, not try to draw any conclusions yet, just observe, understand that uh, things change quickly. Uh, we don't know what the world's going to look like when we go back outside again. Uh, we're pretty sure that uh, uh, there'll be setbacks in fact I mean I'm having tour dates cancel in in the end of August right now, so this is gonna be much longer than most people are prepared for. I'm gonna try to stay uh in the the mindset of uh first and foremost do no harm uh and then try to go into how can I be of service but but I think for for me coming up with uh what it means or 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 how to uh, how to make sense of it man it's premature i really don't know yet
0: well mary i gotta bring it back to food one more time just ask have you been uh have you been doing any a lot of cooking uh these last few weeks and found any comfort there
1: yes yeah, i've been cooking every single night and uh <laughs> i haven't done that since i walked out of the kitchen uh, in fact, I'm on the verge of looking in my closet to see if I have any chef coats left. <laughs> I'm cooking, <laughs> cooking every night. Um, I think I got rid of most of my chef coats, if not all. But there might be one somewhere because it had my name in my restaurant. So I might have kept it like a old uh, memento. A talisman. <laughs> memento, yeah. <laughs> I'm cooking a lot. I'm finding uh, – I'm loving cooking in a sheet pan in the oven, put everything in one sheet pan. Put, put some tinfoil down in a real good cookie sheet that won't bend and just throw some chicken and vegetables and potatoes in one sheet pan and pop it in the oven. It's real nice. I'm enjoying it. You know, my hands, I'm getting burned again, which is great. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm experiencing all the joys of reaching in the oven and hitting your arm against the top of the oven. And, and there goes another burn. Grabbing a hot skillet by the handle, forgetting, oh, my God, where is my potholder? What have I just done? I'm relearning how to cook again, I guess. I haven't done that really since I came to Nashville. I would have a dinner party every now and then and cook for people. But not like this, not every day, three meals a day. So I'm back at it, and I'm really grateful I have the skills. You know, I'm I'm Zooming with people who are like, oh, my God, all I know how to make is cereal. Uh, you know, I, I, if I don't have a, a microwave meal, I don't have food. I, I don't even know how to make bacon and eggs. How do you cook eggs that don't burn? i like – I went to chef school. It's all coming back. I know how to cook. I can plan meals for the week. It's all about timing and preparing and being able to use the ingredients that you have in your refrigerator that are going bad. You got to be able to put them all together into a meal. I know how to do that after all those years in the restaurant. You know That's what soup is for, for goodness sakes. But I think ultimately uh, uh, it's bringing me back, and I'm glad I know how to do it.
0: Well, we got a few recipes at Southern Living if, uh, if you ever need a refresher.
1: <laughs> I know. I love the magazine. My mother's got, I think, uh, Southern Living from the 50s. I don't know how long you've been along, but she's got shelves and shelves and shelves and, <laughs> shelves and shelves and shelves of it. Probably from 66. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Mary Gauthier, thank you for being on Biscuits and Jam. It's been great to have you on.
1: Sid, thanks for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's a great opportunity to to talk with you. And you asked such good questions. You brought me back 30 years and (laughs) and, uh, I'm back cleaning up a mouse ridden, dirty old restaurant that I'm converting to a Cajun restaurant. Oh, my God, that was hard. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for bringing me uh, into gratitude for being a singer songwriter. I, I like what I do. I love my job. Thank you. Thanks
0: for listening to my conversation with Mary Gaucher. Her most recent album, Rifles and Rosary Beads, and her latest single, Truckers and Troubadours, are both available wherever you get music. You can also visit marygauthier.com for updates and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama, and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com and subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam was produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius and me, Sid Evans for Southern living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey. Eliza Lambert and Rachel King at Pod People. On our next episode, I'll be joined by the legendary Willie Nelson. So I hope you'll tune in for more Biscuits and Jam. We'll see you then.